0: Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress you. It is not they who drag you into court. It is not they who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. This section of scripture that we're looking at this morning assumes the understanding that you would have uh, about the rich and the poor from earlier writings in this book of James. In chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 he talks about this and reflects upon the reception of the poor by Jesus. As we think back to the ministry that Jesus had here on earth, he reached out to the poor everywhere he went. He touched them and blessed them and healed them and taught them. It was really a marvelous ministry with those many times that had absolutely nothing. But they were honored in his eyes, and in his ministry. Jesus loved the poor, served the poor, in the exhortation to show partiality in the church. We should not do that. We should not pick out who we're going to honor and who we're going to try and subdue. You know, that goes on in a lot of places. We know it goes on in politics. We're seeing that uh, over and over again almost every day. Someone told me this week if you wanted to know all about your church tree, your family tree, uh, run for politics and somebody (laughs) will find out everything about you. The first verse says show no partiality. Now this is is meant not only for the people of that day but it's meant for us today. You know as we think about uh, the things that we've said and the actions that we've taken related to various people in our lives we think oh I messed up with that one. Oh I didn't do right by him or I didn't do right by her. I put him down. I put her down. I shouldn't have done that. I did the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I acted in the wrong way. The most natural translation of this text would take the negative to indicate a question, which expected, of course, a negative answer. You are not having faith in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ When you show partiality, are you? That's the question that Jesus wants to address to each of us in the house today. Are we showing partiality with the way in which we deal with the folks in our neighborhood, the folks where we work, the people in our family? Are we showing partiality? Are we putting some people down? by how we elevate others. The meaning of the verse here is clear. It's very clear. It's saying prejudice and faith in Christ are incompatible. They don't go together. And so we have to decide, really, each day of our lives, how am I going to handle this situation? How am I going to handle that situation? What am I going to do about this guy who acts in this way? What am I going to do about this lady who acts in this way? What am I going to do about this person that is so wealthy? What am I going to do about this person who is so poor? Partiality means improper favoritism or prejudice. James affirms that such behavior is not appropriate for those who have faith, for those that hold on literally to the Lord Jesus Christ in their daily walk. Those that rely upon Jesus uh, don't show partiality. They don't show prejudice against this one and that one and those and and that kind of uh, grouping. The translation of the Lord of glory in verse 1 attempts to communicate the force of our Lord Jesus Christ who is glory and stresses the relationship of glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory referred to the lofty majesty and visible splendor of God in Judaism. And the application of this term to Jesus indicates the resurrected resurrected Christ and our Lord Jesus who radiates the divine glory in his daily talk, in his daily walk, in all that he does with all the people with whom he interfaces on a daily basis. James contrasts the magnificence of Jesus with the superficial glory that the rich have. In that day, there were two classes. There wasn't a middle class. There was the low class and there was the upper class. No middle ground whatsoever. The rich folks wore fine clothing. Now, if you wore a certain color of clothes, that meant that you were rich, but you were in the lower group of rich. If you wore this other kind of clothing, you were in the the middle rich group. And then if you wore this other color with all the things that went along with that, then you were just filthy rich. You just had all kinds of money. You didn't know what to do with all your money. The rich uh, in this day... Wore, of course, fine clothing, and they had gold rings, gold rings everywhere, gold rings on every finger of both hands, both thumbs. Uh, I don't know where else. (laughs) Don't want to get into that. (laughs) Dress constituted a badge of status and vocation in the first century. And there was a great contrast, as you can imagine, between the rich. And the poor, it was quite conspicuous in one's clothing. That's the way you could immediately tell. The poor man usually had one outfit, and it was dirty because he had a dirty job. And whatever he did, wherever he went, he wore the same clothes. That's all he had. Verse 2, the shabby, dirty clothing characterized a man as poor. And James illustrates the sin of prejudice by the way the rich and poor are treated in the Christian assembly. He saw that, he didn't like that, and he wanted to speak out about it. And in this epistle, he he again and again comes back to this topic of how there needs to be no partiality among the family of God. I served in a church years and years ago, and Mary Kay Ash was a member of our church. And it was well known, of course, that she had uh, zillions of dollars. Uh, I got to know her real well. She was a real nice lady. Uh, She told me one time, and this is 30 years ago, she said, uh, I need to give away about six or 700000 a year because if I don't, I'll just have to pay it in taxes. And she said, uh, why don't you tell me uh, what I need to give to? And so, you know, we were usually in a building program or we had this going on or that going on, and I would try and uh, direct her to whatever. And I noticed when she came into church, a lot of people would poke the person next to him and say, there's Mary Kay. And uh, people in the choir, you know, would kind of poke, there's Mary Kay. And, you know, everybody would kind of watch. And I mean, it, it was it was awkward. And, you know, a sermon like this, in that setting, would have been awkward. Uh, we We need to kind of think through how we're acting, what we're doing, what we're saying, how we relate to all, all of the people in God's family. How our ushers treat people is very important. I'm proud of our folks that do the ushering. They take people to the first available seat. It doesn't matter who they are. Uh, they show equal deference to whoever, whomever it might be. Our ushers try to give everyone a smile, a handshake, a place in the house of God. No matter what they have on, no matter what they're wearing, no ma- matter how many rings you could see on their hand, an agnostic uh, teacher condescendingly uh, confronted a little girl in his class who was obviously poor by what she had on. The little girl believed in Jesus. And she had told her classmates that she was a Christian, she loved the Lord with all of her heart, and she hoped that all of them would be Christians. Well, the agnostic teacher just hated that, hated that that was going on in his class. And so one day in front of the class, he said to her, there are many throughout history who have claimed that they were God. How can you be sure of which one told the truth? How can you be sure of that? Which one of the many can you believe in? little girl responded without hesitation. She said, I believe in the one who rose from the dead. I thought it was uh, wonderful that a little girl could have a testimony like that and that we can have a testimony like that, a testimony that speaks the same thing to everybody, that there's no partiality in what we say or to whom we direct that message. Sometimes those who cannot dress in suits and gowns are the most spiritual people among us. And we need to understand that, and we need to realize the truth of that. Well, the scripture uh, goes on in verse 2, the word assembly is usually translated synagogue. The term might simply note the meeting place without implying any definition as to the congregation. The question posed in verse 4 is based on the situation described in verse 2 and 3. If you still have your Bible open, look back with me at verse 2. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, verse 3, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Have a seat here, please, while you say to the poor man, Sit over there, sit at my feet. Now here's the question. Have you not made distinction among yourselves? And become a judge with evil thoughts. You know, when we separate people out in our mind, or by how we treat them, or by what we do with them, it leads us into sin, really. It leads us into putting some people down. And in the family of God, we certainly should not do that. The fact that they made distinctions, they wavered or doubted, showed that they were departing from the message and practice of Christ. In Atlanta, years ago, I went to a restaurant uh, in the downtown area called Mary Mac's. I know that some of you here have lived in Atlanta at some point in your life. Have, is there one person in the house that ever went to eat at Mary Max? that's uh, in the church today? I don't see anybody's hand. Well, I, they could uh, validate what I'm about to say, which sounds unbelievable. Uh, Mary Max was a great place to go eat. They had great food. The governor of the state of uh, Georgia came there one or two days a week to eat. He just loved it. The hippies uh, ate there. Uh, They came in in all kinds of uh, attire, as you can imagine. The business people, the leaders of the community, they came to eat there. The students from Georgia Tech uh, came in and ate there. It was great food at a reasonable price. They did something at that restaurant that I have never seen done before and have never seen done since. Mary Max was the name of the place and it was named for the people that owned it and ran it, Mary and Mac, her husband. Well, Mary was something. Mary would walk through the room, it was a big room where everybody was eating. And if somebody had been there longer than she thought they should have been, <laughs> Mary would say, you don't have that table rented. Finish up and move on out. <laughs> she would go up to people if they'd been there more than 45 minutes, and she'd say, okay, let's get on with it. There's people waiting. And, of course, there, wa- there were always people waiting. There was a line to get into the place. It was really amazing to see how she did it. I mean, she just walked all over the room, and she kind of tr- kept track of how long people had been there. And she would tell them. She would insult them to their face. She'd say, move along now. Let's move it. Let's move it. You're not eating two desserts. That's just one. When you finish, get on. Well... Uh, it was funny. It was, it was almost an honor to be insulted by her. <laughs> Everybody all over Atlanta talked about it. And, of course, people didn't believe it. They thought, oh, people would be offended and they'd never go back. Well, come to find out, people would hear about what she was doing and they'd come. <laughs> and sure enough, she would go up to him and she'd say, you know, you've eaten enough. It's time for you to kind of move on. There's people that want to get in here. It was just amazing. The thing that I noticed about it was that she treated everybody the same. It didn't matter who they were. She didn't rush the poor people out. She treated the poor people just like the governor. If the governor had some people and they were talking over business or something, she'd say, all right, governor, you can go back to your office. (laughs) She treated everybody exactly the same. You know, there's something Christian about that, and that's what she did. She did what Jesus would do. Jesus treated everybody the same. The verb, listen, in verse 5, marks a literary division which introduces a series of questions in verses 5 through 7. The attitude of God to the poor posed a shaming contrast to the discrimination that James was seeing in the church. He saw it. It was obvious. God has chosen those who are poor, the verse says, but the Christians, James addressed, chose to dishonor them. God honored them, and the rich dishonored them. God's selection constitutes the poor as rich in faith. You know, we need to think about this. Sometimes as we're growing up, we don't have a dime and we are faithful to the Lord. We're active in church. We're active in Bible study. We're active in mission work. We're active in all these things. And then when we get a little older and things start coming together for us and we get that promotion and then we get another promotion and then we get another promotion and then we buy our business and then we do this and then we do that and then we're rich. And then all of a sudden, we don't think we need God anymore. We don't think we need to reach out in ministry anymore. We're busy. We've got important things to do. You know, we, we need to really think through that. If your grandchildren or great-grandchildren are working through that now, a word about Christian faith from you would be really, really helpful in that situation. God's selection was to all evenly, but it seemed that many of the poor responded with great vigor because they knew they had to put their lives in the hands of someone And they decided to put their lives in the hands of God. Now this passage is not condemning all wealthy people. I've heard this misrepresented in in some books or sermons. Uh, That's not what it's doing. That's not what it's saying. It is a condemnation of people who oppress certain ones. That's who's being condemned in these verses. We need to give everyone a fair hearing. We need to let everyone testify. We need to let everyone be a part of the fellowship and family of God. When I was in graduate school, I uh, was a counseling major, and I didn't know anything about group counseling. And so a part of my coursework, was to be an intern in a group for six months and learn sort of how they did it. And then I got my own group. It was a group of men from about 40 to 70. There were some very interesting people in the group that came for counseling and therapy. One of the vice presidents at Bell Helicopter there in Fort Worth was in the group. There were presidents of uh, certain companies in my group. There were some people that were obviously poor in my group. Well, the way we worked it was the leader would start out the hour by saying, "Uh, I have kind of messed up this week by doing this, and you would tell what you did. And then the person to your left, we sat in a circle, the person to your left would tell you, what you might do to lessen the effect of that and how you might learn from that and not do that again and how you could be helped maybe if you did this other thing. And so we would go around the circle and everybody would make some suggestions about how you could do better, how you could change yourself for the better. And then the next person would say where they had been kind of missing the mark in their life and everybody would, would give them a word of, Direction or consolation or help or whatever. And that's basically uh, what we did. Um, In my group, there were some brilliant people. There was a guy that uh, was sort of like the people in this scripture. He wore the same outfit every week, the same exact clothes. And they didn't look clean. And he would come in, and he would listen to whoever was saying how they had messed up. And two or three people would uh, make uh, suggestions. And then he would say something. And I'm not exaggerating. Every week in that circle of some brilliant folks and some really well-educated folks, this guy every week had the best suggestion. He had common sense. And after we'd been doing this together for about four or five months, one day I saw him outside and I said, uh, Jim or John or whatever his name was, I said, uh, do you go to church anywhere? And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, I go to such and such a church. And I said, "I, I thought you did. It was interesting to note that maybe Jesus had tempered his life, his mindset, his course of action. And he had become a tremendous help to all the people in that group. The rich are said to oppress the poor in our text. And this strong term is frequently used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. For the persecution of the people of God. The oppression that the rich put on the poor. The oppression was both social and religious. You know, we know how to put people down. If we want to, we know how to do it, don't we? We can hit them in this way or this way or this way. We can hit them socially or mentally or religiously, we can hit them. We can hurt them if we want to. The rich drag the poor into court. And the implication is is that the poor were taken advantage of in the court system by the rich. The rich probably knew the judge. They were buddies. They ate lunch together at (laughs) Merrimack's. They got along real well together. Well, James' exhortation is relevant for Christians' attitude in every situation. He pleads for an evaluation of persons that rest upon their essential worth from the perspective of God's love, the perspective of God's love and the example of Jesus. We need to listen to the children. We need to listen to the uneducated. We need to listen to those of other races. We need to listen to those who have a completely different background from ours. We need to listen to the poor and to hear them out and to hear what's on their heart. Halfway down a very steep hill, a man was driving his car. It was very, very steep, and it was a winding road. And as he was going down that way, his first time he'd ever been on that road, he saw a lady standing over to the side by her gate, and he stopped his car, and he got out. He walked over to her, and he said, uh, Is it safe to, to drive down this road? It's very steep, and it's windy. He said... Uh, is it, is it safe for me to go on down this street? Is this hill really, really that dangerous? It's not dangerous here, she said. It's down there at the bottom <laughs> where people kill each other. <laughs> you know, prejudice builds in our life. If you were born into a family that had great prejudice, then probably you did. And you had to grow and develop in Christ beyond that. Because if it's not taken care of, prejudice builds in our life over the years and grows as we go further down the road. Eventually, it kills our witness. It kills our testimony. We need to take a different road. That's what we need to do. A road of love, a road of caring, a a road of compassion for everyone. For everyone, not just for a specific few, but for everyone. That's the way of Jesus. Today, if you're in the house and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to invite you to do that today. If you're here and you've been visiting with us for a good time, we'd love to have you come and join with us. We'd love to have you be a part of our church family. We'd like for you to come so that you can find places of service in our church, like this deacon thing. You can't be a deacon unless you're a member of the church. We hope that many would come and join with us and serve with us, and that we would make a great difference in this area and literally around the world for our risen Savior. That's our hope. That's our prayer. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'm going to stand right here at the front. If the Lord leads you, you just slip out and slip forward and take a stand for him. Let's stand together as we sing.